Welcome to episode six of Learn Me Right. And it's a very special episode today because we are mixing things up a little and I'm interviewing co-host Sinead Prince, who is a PhD candidate here at QUT. Sinead, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you for welcoming me to my podcast. You're very welcomed. <laughs> Sinead, can you tell us a little bit about what your position here at QUT is? And then I've got some rapid fire questions for you. Um, thank you, Ruthie. So I'm a PhD candidate at uh, QUT here in the Faculty of Law in the Australian Centre for Health, Health Law Research. I did my undergraduate here at QUT as well. I did a double degree in Bachelor of Biomedical Science and a Bachelor of Laws here, uh, which I finished a year ago now. Well, that's the perfect combination of study to be doing this particular <laughs> PhD topic, which intersects between both of those really, really uh, nicely. And I also want to just give you a little round of applause because you mentioned PhD candidate and you passed your confirmation a few weeks ago and it was one of the most amazing presentations I've seen. So congratulations. <laughs> Very proud Thank to you. be Thank with you. <laughs> Thank you. So rapid fire questions for you. What are your pronouns? She, her. Highlight of the year so far? Definitely passing confirmation. <laughs> A good one. What's your coffee order? Um, flat white from most cafes. If it's a proper coffee brewery, I'll get some batch brew. Very nice. And what would you sing at karaoke? <laughs> well, you should know this. <laughs> um, you know, start me off with some light Bohemian Rhapsody, you know, throw in some Avril Lavigne, Skater Boy in there, um, you know, and then end the night maybe with a little bit of Kelly Cox. Clarkson so that sounds like the perfect mix and we can probably dig up some old footage to add that to the podcast <laughs> soundtrack today um, because I know that that does exist <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for that lovely introduction I have a few big questions for you today about your research so the first one is can you tell us a little bit about what your research is and your topic of interest what are you specifically looking at so um, my PhD is on the ethics of genetically enhancing humans. So, um, you know, the classic designer babies, if I could use any more annoying cliche, um, and it's, you know, making people smarter, making people with blue eyes um, or making people taller with bigger feet. <laughs> so is that okay and should we be doing it? Okay. So genetic enhancement sounds like, a pretty complicated word. Can you tell me exactly what that means? Yes. Uh, the past 12 months of my research have, in fact, just been defining enhancement. <laughs> so there are three different ways we can define enhancement. So the first one is probably more widely known as radical enhancement. So um, adding, I don't know, wings and like allowing us to fly or giving us a capacity to breathe underwater. So giving us capacities or functions that homo sapiens don't actually normally have. Um, that's generally accepted to be more of like a radical niche area. Um, there are two other definitions. One is that genetic enhancement is any improvement to the human physiological system at all. And then the last one is um, any intervention in someone who is already healthy is a genetic enhancement. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> there are lots of different de definitions in the literature and I've definitely had trouble picking one. Um, the one I've picked is is the latter one. So it's any intervention um, in, in, in an already healthy person. 
Um, but the, a lot of people in the literature, especially a lot of the big names in the literature, generally take the second one. So they believe that it's any improvement at all to the, to the human body. Can I ask you a question about that, Sinead? So yeah. there are obviously things that exist already that improve our state of being. So, for example, if I'm sick and I have medicine that makes yeah. me better, that would maybe be an improvement. Yes. How does that differ from genetic enhancement? So that- if you – yeah, that's a really good question. You know, there are other ones as well, like just eating good food, um, having a good night rest, maybe drinking caffeine. There are things that we do that already improve our, our physiology. So if you accept that definition, then what that would mean is that genetic enhancement is no different to any other means by which we already – improve our bodies. So if you think that eating good food and having a good sleep and drinking coffee and taking medicine is ethical or morally permissible, then you would also accept genetic enhancement as morally permissible. Now, I don't agree. I think that there is a massive distinction between, um, you know, therapy and enhancement. And um, the therapy enhancement debate has taken over a massive section in the literature. Some people, some people don't move past the distinction between the two of them. But if you if you are like me, you may accept the enhancement therapy distinction on the grounds that therapy targets people who have diseases, whereas enhancement clearly targets healthy people. So there are very different purposes there. You know, one is to help people get better and to return them to a normal state of health, whereas enhancement is clearly moving people beyond um, already normal functioning, giving them extra capacities, making them smarter um, and, uh, you know, having better memory, those sorts of things. So it sounds like from your summary just then that the difference between therapy and enhancement really depends on whether somebody is healthy or whether they have a disease. Is that right? Yes. Now we have entered the crux of what I've been doing for the past 12 months, and that is defining health and disease. And I'm not the first person, nor will I be the last person to do this. Um, Defining health and disease is, I was quite shocked to find how much literature was around people disputing what is health and what is disease. And then I quickly realized why. Um, There are two sort of camps that people sit in when they're trying to define health and disease. The first one is normativism. So normativism is... um, is the way things ought to be. So if you're thinking about things like what is the best way to treat people? What is the good life? What should love look like? Um, how should we distribute resources? These are all normative questions. What, what should we do about something? So they're sort of dependent on our values and and how we see the world and what we think is right or wrong, things like yes, that. Yes, exactly. So normativism looks at health and disease and says, well, health is a state of desirability. We, we ought to, we want to be healthy. We should be healthy. And disease is a state of undesirability. You don't want to be in disease. You don't want to be in pain and suffering. Um, we ought not to be diseased. So you're entirely right in saying that normativism is about beliefs. It's about values. Um, and you know, this can work. (laughs) You don't want to have a broken arm um, because, you know, it's very painful. It prevents you from doing a lot of things. You don't want to have certain infections or to have certain um, conditions because uh, if you're already healthy, these can really, um, you know, like deteriorate your experiences and your ability to to operate and and function in society. So, um, however, normativism can also be used to discriminate people and oppressed people. So we can see this most obviously in the case of homosexuality and how uh, we have um, previously in Western civilizations uh, pathologized homosexuals as being mentally ill. 
and only recently um in still in some countries it's still considered to to be a disease so whilst normativism can be helpful and it can be correct and it can align with science it can also be used to oppress people um and because it's based based on beliefs rather than facts we have to permit that because different cultures operate differently and they have different values and they're totally okay to have those different values. Mm. So there are some good things about normativism, but there are definitely some really bad things about normativism. However, there is another option and this is naturalism. If you accept science and chemistry and physics and biology and you think all of these things are true and valid, um, regardless of whether or not everyone else believes them, then you're probably a bit of a naturalist in some regards. For me, I, I think the best way to explain it is you don't have to believe in gravity. Gravity is just there. <laughs> so if you accept that sort of saying, you're definitely a naturalist about science as well. So if you accept a, if you accept a scientific lens and you accept that um, a science is a, tr a truth and science is valid, then you probably also accept that health and disease is, is just another chapter in the in the book of science. So it would go, for example, chapter one, physics, chapter two, chemistry, chapter three, biology, and in chapter three on biology would be health and disease. Um, there are some, some cons and some criticisms of this, but we will get to them. But that, those are the two different ways that the literature talks about health and disease. And for me personally, I, I both A, accept science to be a valid truth, and B, I, I reject any sort of way that we can use biology to oppress people. And we can see that in racism and sexism, the classification of certain biological factors as a way to oppress people. So for me, I go with naturalism. <laughs> I think that sounds like a really interesting and um, well thought out approach. And it's really interesting that you mentioned homosexuality because I was really shocked to discover um, in my home state of Tasmania, it's still allowable to have conversion therapy or to to do that and that's pretty shocking and to think that we've come a long way I think in recognizing that homosexuality is not a disease or undesirable but to still have a law like that it's it's pretty shocking so I completely agree yeah and one of the ways that um we can prevent these things from you know we can fix these things that like like that and then prevent them from happening is accepting a naturalist definition of health and disease and um, if something, and only classifying disease if there is biological proof um, that it that it is a disease. And and on that, what is that biological proof? Like, you know, there are so many different ways that we could objectively define health and disease. Um, but probably the most widely um, discussed and criticised mm -hmm. is that by Christopher Bourse um, in in nineteen seventy seven. Christopher Bourse accepts what's called the normal functioning theory, or he terms it the biostatistical theory of health. So he says that health is a state of normal functioning, and normal functioning consists of two things. One, that it is uh, the statistically typical uh, function. Um, so what basically what that, what that means is that on average, that liver cell or that bone um, has that same function. And what is a function? It is a physiological process that contributes to the goals of survival and reproduction. So those goals are the ones that we use in biomedical science 
to explain how things work. So, for example, um, a bone cell would is a statistically typical cell that exists in all Homo sapiens, and it contributes to the goals of survival by creating bone tissue and bone marrow, which supports um, the entire organism. And the same could be said about the liver. So the liver is a statistically typical organ in Homo sapiens, and it contributes to the goals of survival by filtering the blood. Um, then we also have a reproductive system. The reproductive system as a whole is a statistically typical uh, system in humans and it contributes to the goals of reproduction very obviously there. And then as an entirety, we can also talk about the entire organism and how that and how that can have statistically typical behaviours. So Homo sapiens, along with most other organisms, sleep, <laughs> consume nutrients or eat, um, reproduce, so for humans have, um, have sexual intercourse, um, exercise in Homo sapiens, all of these things are statistically typical contributions to the goals of reproduction and survival. So that is how, um, that is the theory that I've chosen after a very long time of reading and discussing the criticisms. That's the one that I, I agree with the most. But of course, there are criticisms and we must discuss the criticisms before we blindly accept theory. And believe me, there are many. Not all of them are good. Um, uh, but some of them are really good. But when we work through them, we can see how they actually help to better explain how the theory works. So I think the best one is from Elsalyn Kingmar. And uh, she is a fantastic writer. Um, but she she criticizes the, the biostatistical theory on the grounds that it's situation specific. So for example, she uses this excellent example. She says, when you're exercising, your digest digestive system actually stops working, like stops. It, it's inactive. It's, it's not doing anything. Now, when you're poisoned, uh, your digestive system stops. It's inactive. It's not working. So how can you tell the difference here between a healthy one and a diseased one? She says, well, the solution to this is to actually account for the fact that you account for the situation. So clearly in the situation of exercising, um, exercising is healthy. So therefore the inactive state is healthy. Now in the situation of being poisoned, well, that's unhealthy. Um, so therefore, you know, um, the inactive digestive tract here is unhealthy. But as soon as you take into account that particular situation, um, we would say that whenever a human being or a homo sapien is poisoned, their digestive tract will always, it's statistically typical for the digestive tract to stop and be inactive. So therefore, isn't this healthy? Because it's this statistically typical um, function that's going on there. And so she says that therefore it's just a, it's just a circle. You'll never be able to actually tell what's healthy and what's diseased because you have to take into account the situation. But as soon as you get into the situation, whatever happens will, will always happen. So therefore it's always healthy. <laughs> now, does that make sense? I mean, yes, it does. <laughs> the way you explain it is incredible. My little brain is, is struggling a little. <laughs> um, can I just confirm, you mentioned before about it being statistically typical with reference to the two goals of survival. Can you explain to me again how that relates to each of those scenarios? Because obviously if your body shut or your digestive system shuts down, if you've been poisoned, that's contributing to the goals of survival by stopping you ingesting that poison. And then if you're exercising, that's contributing to the goals of survival by keeping your various bits of your body healthy and <laughs> allowing you to survive longer. So 
I'm just struggling with the difference between those two scenarios. Yes. So what you're saying is that when you exercise, the inactive digestive system actually helps to survive. And when you're poisoned, the inactive digestive system helps you to survive as well by shutting down. Yeah. Yes. So um, that that's a, that's a really good point, but we do have some responses to that. So the first one is that ingesting poison is actually not a species typical behavior. So remember how at the start I said, um, you know, as an, as a whole organism, we exercise, we sleep, we eat nutrients, uh, we reproduce. Ingesting poison is not one of those statistically typical behaviors. If it was, I'd have to recant my statement, <laughs> but as it stands, it's not. Um, however, exercising is. So we can sort of start to use these additional little factors to help explain the difference. Another one is that uh, physiology is dynamic. So I'm sure you're aware of the rest and digest versus flat and flat modes of the human body. So, you know, when you're resting, you're digesting, whereas if you're exercising or you're in fright, uh, you stop digesting and all of your energy goes to um, helping you get out of that situation. So... Um, as, as you said, like the, the digestive system, it does shut down during um, or after being poisoned, but that's not actually a function. That isn't actually a statistically typical function towards survival and reproduction. There is actually damage to your cells. So after being poisoned, your diet, whilst it is inactive, it actually can't do the job it's supposed to do. So if you stopped exercising and started eating, you'd go straight back into resting and digesting. Whereas if you started eating straight after having poison, you wouldn't be able to. Your 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 system is damaged. Um, so we can see there that that is clearly a disease because it is, because it is interfering with normal functioning. Um, the other thing we need to point out is the difference between a function and a reaction. So it is the function of your digestive system to stop to stop being active when you exercise. This has the purpose of allowing energy to flow to your muscles so that you can actually like respond to the situation. So that is there is a, a dual function there between the active and inactive. And we can see that also with like our power and sympathetic nerves. While one system is on, the other has to be off, but that's a functional thing. Whereas after being poisoned, it can't work at all. That's actually a reaction. It's not a function. And, um, you know, simply because something does something in a certain situation doesn't mean it's the function of that thing to do that thing. And I know that's a lot of things and functions, but the best way to explain it is just because a volcano erupts doesn't mean it's the function of a volcano to erupt. So it's just because something reacts in a certain way doesn't mean it's the function of that thing so we can we can use all these different ways to explain how um yes a uh, normal functioning is situation specific we have to take into account the situation such as exercising or eating um but this doesn't actually undo the entire theory as kima thinks it does um how how do we go there <laughs> that's amazing thank you yes but a real knack for explaining things in <laughs> I think the topic that you're studying is just so complex that it's just really impressive that you're <laughs> taking it on. So thank you. <laughs> uh, uh, um, uh, you. You seem to be missing the part that I've spent 12 months like revisiting these concepts and trying to figure these things out for myself. I remember I was, um, I'd written my responses to this particular problem and then I had to come back to revisit it for confirmation. And I was like, I don't remember writing this. I had to like re-go through all the concepts and like make sure they actually made sense to me again, despite the fact that I'd written them. So <laughs> don't worry. Um, yes, it's mm -hmm. taken me a very long time. Well, you are nailing it. <laughs>
Can I ask you a question? Yes. Is one potential criticism of this theory related to how it reflects on people who might have a disability? Is it problematic in that context? Yes. So um, I accept the fact that the biomedical model of disease has had ramifications for those who have um, disabilities. However, I still think that it's very important that we still use it. And there's several reasons why. The first is that we used to have a medical model of disability. We used to look at disability, which is different from disease, um, and say, well, the reason, you know, disabled people have such problems in society is purely because of the disease. And we completely ignore the fact that society is structured um, so that people with disabilities have less opportunity than the rest of us. Uh, the most obvious one is the fact that um, whilst a, a person in a wheelchair has a disability, yes, you know, there may be some, some um, disease there, but it's because society doesn't use ramps is the reason why they have less access to everywhere in society. So we did used to have a medical model of disability that was widely criticised, and now we've moved on to the social model of disability. And it did swing too far the other way there for a while where they tried to say that everything, um, all the problems a person with a disability had was social. But we've now sort of swung back to the middle where we recognise that disability is where you have a combination of um, a, a disease or a medical condition including um, a society that is structured so to as oppress or discriminate or prevent that person with disability from having equal opportunity. So what I say there is that the this particular theory of health and disease isn't meant to define or explain how a person with a disability experiences life. All it is meant to do is, is explain the physiological process that is happening. Uh, what we do with that information and how we treat people who have certain um, diseases is up to society. We're allowed to use that information and this is where normativism comes in. We can use that information to do really good things. We can use that information to do really bad things, but that doesn't change the fact that that information is true, um, if that makes sense. So I guess what I'm saying is that the social stigma of being diseased is a people problem. So when you go around and say, oh, this person has a disease or, you know, this person has COVID or something, the way we talk about that is a reflection of society, not the science. <laughs> you wouldn't criticise someone for being subject to gravity. <laughs> That's just not the way we talk about that. But definitely, um, yeah, disease has some social connotations and that's our fault and we need to fix that. Um, so, you know, just because we don't like a fact doesn't mean it isn't true. And we definitely have a lot of work to do about separating um, like medical and prejudicial views about um, uh, disability. The um, I think one of the big ones people do talk about, though, is uh, the, you know, deaf culture. And there was that couple in the United States who tried to select an embryo that would be deaf like them because they didn't identify as um, being disabled by virtue of being deaf. Now, this one's really tricky because you definitely can't go telling an entire culture saying, ah, uh, what you're saying is not true. Um, we can come up, yeah, that that does pose quite a bit of a problem. And I accept that. I accept that just because you have a disease doesn't actually mean you have to do anything about it. That's a society thing, trying to, trying to go around and telling everyone with a disease that you need to be fixed. It's entirely up to you how you view your own disease or how you view yourself and identify yourself. That is entirely up to you. Um, but just because a disease has certain advantages, such as, um, you know, by virtue of being deaf, being included in an amazing culture with awesome people, 
doesn't mean you have to go and then immediately, you know, get rid of, uh, like fix your fix your definites. I'm using uh, air quotations there because I don't like to use the word fix. But there are a couple of other examples of where having a certain disease is actually quite advantageous. Uh, sickle cell anemia, for example, if you have um, one or two copies of the sickle cell anemia gene, you're actually more resistant to malaria than anyone else. And your uh, likelihood of surviving malaria is actually highly increased. So you can see how if you go to an, a malarial environment, having a sickle cell anemia gene, whilst it is a disease is actually quite advantageous. Um, another one is having chickenpox as a kid. <laughs> quite advantageous. I remember my sister got chickenpox when I was little and my mom just like shoved us in a room together until I got them because <laughs> you need to get it as a child because it, um, you know, it, it gives you immunity for things that you might not survive as you get older. So it's actually quite advantageous to have that. And there's a, another one um, I read in a, a book called Bio Essays on Bioethics by Robert Hare. And he talks about a particular South American tribe where they um, had a certain condition that caused red spots on their skins. And um, this became so widely prevalent that it was actually a condition or a criteria to be married is to have those spots. So there are definitely certain diseases that bring about advantages, advantages um, because of the way our society is structured. Um, but that's just a societal response. Once again, that's society treating people differently based on their biological classifications. And we can change that. Um, so, yes, I completely agree that the, that uh, this, this information might not um, go down great. Um, with a few with the disabled community, but I'm not trying to define disability. I'm trying to define disease. And that is a much smaller aspect of, of their experience. And it's completely up to them to explain, defend and advocate for oh, the entire community's responsibility to advocate for, but it's up to them to explain how and what that means to live with that and what we need to be doing with that information. That makes complete sense. So there is a place for values and normativism, but it's in considering how society responds and treats people rather than, in your view, how we define health and disease. Because if we put those values into that context, it can be really dangerous and harmful to marginalised communities. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, and we can see that in, in sexism and racism and how we use specific biological characteristics to oppress entire groups of people. Mm. So um, that is where I've got to. <laughs> I've uh, accepted this particular theory of health and disease and um, uh, that was what my confirmation was on. And if you want to, you can read this in two years' time when I finished my thesis. Um, but I've moved on now to applying this particular theory and um, defending the therapy enhancement distinction. And now um, I get to move on to actually looking at the permissibility of genetic enhancement. That is so exciting. <laughs> I read the entire thing and see what you come up with. I guess just a couple of last questions to finish with, if that's okay. If there's something that we as ordinary people should take away from this discussion, what do you think that is? I would, I would definitely will be advocating for using a naturalist theory of health and disease. So what that means in your daily life is if you have a disease, which when we say disease, I should have said this way at the start, but it includes things like a broken bone or um, having COVID, for example. It's not just infectious diseases. It's everything else. Um, is that before you go and make judgments about it, realize that this is just a state of physiology 
and to not criticize people or judge people for having a disease or um, because it's completely up to us and uh, to define our own attitudes towards it. But that doesn't change the fact that this is a, this is science and this is a valid truth. So I guess it's, you know, when when you go and say things like, oh, that, you know, that they have a disease and you're like a little bit hushed about it. Why are you being hushed? <laughs> you know, it's just a, it's just a, a state of existence and it's up to other people to define their own lived experience and talk about what it means to them. We shouldn't be putting that onto other people. That is wonderful. Thank you. And I think I can probably come back to you in a couple of years when you finish your thesis and ask you one of our other questions that we usually ask on the podcast, which is what should governments and how should law and policy respond to this particular issue? But I won't ask you that just yet. I'll let you have this <laughs> couple of years to think about think about that and we'll we'll do this again. We'll meet back here in the not too distant future. That sounds excellent. I think um, when it comes to governments using a particular theory of health and disease, I think all we can do is ask them to just check their classifications of diseases and make sure they're actually all diseases and not, you know, sneaking some things in there that aren't entirely true. Thank you so much, Nate. It's been so fun to interview you and so incredible to hear about your research and how far you've progressed in just the first year. Congrats again on confirmation and I'm so excited to watch your progress and support you all the way along for the next couple of years and to see what you come up with at the end of the PhD. Thank you. Thank you. And I look forward to interviewing you next. <laughs> <laughs>